little boy was meandering home one Sunday when his neighbor asked him where he had been. He said, I've been at Sunday school. Neighbor said, I'll tell you what, if you can tell me where God is, I'll give you this shiny new dime. Little boy shot back. I'll give you a dollar, mister, if you can tell me where God ain't. Children were lined up for lunch in the cafeteria of a Catholic elementary school. Just beyond the trays and the silverware was a large pile of apples. The nun had made a a sign and posted it on the apples that said, Take only one. God is watching. The other end of the cafeteria line was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. When he got there, one little boy whispered to the other, Take all you want. God is watching the apples. (laughs) That raises a great question. Where is God? And where isn't God? If you were going to send God a letter, where would you address it? Our passage this morning answers that question because it tells us where God's present house is. But before we look at that, I want us to look at some of God's previous houses. God has had previous houses. In fact, God has been moving in and out of a lot of houses over the history of man. And I want to point out three of them to you. The first is Adam. And for that, I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, man is a unique combination of what is low and what is high. God made man out of dust. Dust is low. In fact, you really can't get any lower than dust. When Satan sinned, the curse on the serpent was what? He would crawl on his belly and eat dust, what man was made out of. In Genesis 18, 27, Abraham said to the Lord, I am nothing but dust and ashes. In Job 42, 6, Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Adam was made out of dirt. He was a clay dummy initially. You ever see that show, uh, Mythbusters? And they have the dummy, they keep having to remake him because they break him all the time. Buster, I think is his name. That's who we were. We were clay dummies. Adam was a clay dummy. He was low until God breathed into him. That's high. And to really understand how high that is, you have to understand 
the, the connection between God's spirit and God's breath. In fact, in ancient languages, the word for breath and spirit are identical words. That's true in in Latin. The word for spirit and breath is a word you're probably somewhat familiar with. It's the word spiritus, from which we get our word spirit. And we're familiar with that in our language, but even in our language, that word spirit oftentimes has the idea of breath. For instance, a word like aspire means to breathe deeper and try harder. To conspire means to put your heads together and breathe in and out with each other. To be inspired is when God blows some of his breath into a man. To perspire is when your breath comes out through your skin. And when you expire, you breathe your last time. It's also true in the Greek. The word for spirit and breath is the same word. It's the name, it's the word pneuma, spelled P-N-E-U-M-A with a silent P, pneuma. Translates into our language with a word like pneumatic that talks about any tool that is air-driven. Pneumonia is a disease of the breathing of the lungs. It's also true in Hebrew. The word for spirit and breath is the same word, and it's the Hebrew word ruach. And you can't say it without sounding like you're breathing. Rock is the word. Interestingly, it's the same word used in Genesis 1-2 where it says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And the New English Bible translates that verse this way, a mighty wind swept over the surface of the waters. Now why is it translated Spirit of God and wind? Because... Spirit and wind and breath are all the same word in Hebrew. So in Genesis 2-7, it could be translated, God breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life. You see, I would say to you, this is more than CPR. God didn't create Adam's body and then do a little CPR. He breathed into him his breath. Or his spirit. You say, Dan, are you saying that God moved into Adam? No, I'm not going that far. But I am saying that Adam had a special, close, intimate, breath-to-breath, spirit-to-spirit relationship with God. I will go this far. I'll say that God moved into the neighborhood because in Genesis 3.8, it says God walked in the Garden of Eden with him. And of course, Adam was on a probationary period and if he had passed the probationary period, he would have eaten from the tree of life and there would have been this unique relationship with God. So God was in the garden. He wasn't there to smell the roses. He was there because of this connection with Adam. But then God moved out, and we'll see that in a moment. And God moved into another house. And the second house was first the tabernacle and then the temple. And to see that, I want you to look over at 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 10. 
Solomon has finished the temple and the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. And in verse 10 it says, It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Wow. You have this beautiful, gleaming temple filled with a cloud, and that cloud is the glory of God. And Solomon says, this is going to be God's house forever. And then what I like is he makes a theological statement a little later in this chapter. Slide down to verse 27. Solomon, still speaking, says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. He builds this house The cloud of the glory of God comes in and fills it up, and Solomon says, God's going to live here forever, but then he says, you know what? It's really true that the omniscient God can't be contained in in this one house. And yet God was in Adam, and God filled the temple with his glory, and yet later he moves out of the temple, and we'll see that in a minute. And he moved into another house. And that third house was Jesus. And I want you to look at John chapter 2 with me. John chapter 2. Verse 19. To understand this context, Jesus is standing in the temple when he makes this statement. So it's very confusing for those listening. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? They're thinking of the temple and saying it took 40, this was a 46-year project, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But then notice verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus' body was the temple of God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells, in bodily form. In John chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, And the Word, which is Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word dwell means to tabernacle among. Jesus tabernacled among us. He was the temple of God. In our midst. And so we have Adam, we have the temple in the Old Testament, and we have 
Jesus as three previous houses. And I want to suggest that they have four things in common this morning. I've listed them in your bulletin. Four characteristics of these houses. First, each house was designed by God. When you look at Adam, Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. And it's interesting that those are plural pronouns. Right in the first chapter of the Bible, we see that there is one God and yet three persons, that God is, has a plurality to him. Let us make man in our image. In fact, some would suggest that he made man with three rooms, body, soul, and spirit. With our body, we know what's around us. With our soul, we know what's within us. With our spirit, we know what's above us. Adam was designed by God. Secondly, the temple was designed by God. Interestingly, the, the temple also had three rooms. The outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holy places. And God was very specific on how the temple, the tabernacle and temple were to be built because it's really a big picture of God. And then Jesus was designed by God. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, Jesus speaking to the Father says, A body you have prepared for me. And of course, part of that preparation process was the amazing miracle of him being born of a virgin, preparing that body for its purpose. So each house was designed. Secondly, each house was desecrated, or if you don't know what that word means, just put dirty next to it. Adam was in the garden, and God said, there's one tree you can't eat from. What did he do? He and Eve ate from that tree. And in Genesis 2.17, he says, The day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, does that mean Eve fell over dead the day she ate? No. How did they die? Well, they died immediately in spirit. They died progressively in soul. And they died ultimately in body. And we each inherit that same death. We have that spiritual death inherited from Adam. And while we still have traces of the glory of God, we still have traces of his image about us, we are totally depraved. We cannot do any good that is pleasing to God. We cannot understand spiritual truth. We cannot seek God apart from his spirit and his drawing. And so each was desecrated. Adam was desecrated. The temple was desecrated. Did you know that the beautiful, gorgeous, gleaming temple became dirty? In fact, in the time of Jesus, he made this statement in Matthew 21, 13. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. It became dirty. Then we come to Jesus. Jesus became dirty. You say, wait a minute, hold on. How dare you say that Jesus became dirty? Well, Jesus, let me be careful with this. Jesus never sinned. 
But Jesus willingly became sin for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So each was desecrated. Thirdly, each house was deserted. What happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? God threw them out of the garden. He said, no longer will I walk with you. No longer will I have this intimate fellowship with you. What about the temple? What did Jesus say in Matthew 23, 38? He said, behold, your house, interesting, he doesn't even call it God's house anymore. He says, your house is being left to you desolate. And the word desolate means deserted. It's empty. God moved out. In actuality, God had moved out about 400 years earlier. Uh, In fact, he, he gave Ezekiel an image of the temple, a vision of the temple, and what was happening was the Spirit of God was moving out of the temple. You read his vision, and the temple of God moves to the threshold of the temple, then moves up on the mountaintop. He's moving out of the temple. People of Israel didn't know God was gone. They were still going through the motions, doing the sacrifices, keeping the feasts, but God was not there anymore. What about Jesus? said, wait a minute. You're going to say that God moved out of Jesus? Well, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Jesus took our sin, there was a separation between he and the Father that we really can't get a real good handle on, but he was forsaken by the Father when he took our sin and he paid the judgment for our sin. And then fourthly, each house was destroyed. Adam and Eve died, as I said earlier, immediately in spirit, progressively in soul, ultimately in body, and when they died, their bodies went back to dust. The temple, Solomon's temple was destroyed. The temple in Jesus' day was destroyed. In fact, he said in Matthew 24, not one stone will stand upon another. And in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem and leveled the temple. What about Jesus? Jesus said, destroy this temple. And that's what happened on the cross when he said, it is finished. So throughout history, God has been moving in and out of houses. There are three previous houses, which brings us to the second point of my message, and that is God's present house. Where does God live right now? If if you wanted to send a letter to God, what is his current address? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We covered these verses last time, but I told you I wanted to come back to them because they contain such an important truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and read with me verses 19 and 20. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Did you get that? God bought you. And verse 20 says, just says, he bought you with a price. Doesn't tell us what the price was, but we know what the price was. Acts 20, 28 says, he purchased us with his own blood. That's a high price. 1 Peter 1, 18 says, silver and gold couldn't buy you out of your futile way of life. It took the blood of Christ. That's pretty amazing that we cost that much. But you know what's equally amazing? When God bought us, he didn't buy us to be his slaves. He bought us to be his dwelling place. His aim was not simply that we work for him. His aim was that we be filled up with him. I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 3.19. He says that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's pretty amazing. You know, on the real estate market, you were condemned property. If you were on the real estate market and I drove by you before you were a believer, before you were saved, you would have had one of those signs that, signs that said, stay out, condemned. We're, we, we didn't get around to it, but we're just going to knock this thing down. And yet in that condition, God bought you with the highest price imaginable, and he moved in and he made you his temple. Now, where did he move in? Did he move into your spirit? Did he move into your soul? Well, yes, but that's not the point of this passage. This passage says what? He moved into your body. You know, as Christians, I think it's easy for us to get a reputation that we're against the body. Because we are always talking about the spiritual life, and we're always talking about getting to heaven, and sometimes we neglect the fact that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord made your body, he bought your body, he lives in your body. In fact, go back in this passage and, and no, notice what it says at the end of verse 13. It says, the Lord is for the body. Some of us need to underline that a couple times. The Lord is for the body. We, we sometimes look at the body as just like, I, I wish I could get out of this thing. You know, it's a, it's a problem. The only thing it's good for is to catch a disease and kill me. But God is for the body. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the application? Well, what does he say at the end of verse 20? Therefore, that's telling you an application is coming. Therefore, glorify God, where? In your body. 
So where is God's present address? In you, if you're a believer. Now, with that in mind, I want to make four areas of application. Four areas that this applies to your Christian life when you understand that God lives in you. And that's listed at the bottom of your outline. First, it applies to salvation. When we talk about salvation as Christians, we oftentimes think salvation is God getting man out of earth into heaven. That's salvation. See, when we understand this concept, salvation is really God getting out of heaven into man. That's salvation. I love Colossians 1.27. It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Salvation is not just God transporting me to heaven. It's him coming and taking up his dwelling place inside of me. Now, the interesting thing is, in all the previous houses, God started with a clean temple, and it became dirty. In our case, God starts with a dirty shack and turns it into a clean temple. You see, out of this verse, I know that salvation is God purchasing you and owning you and moving in and taking up residence in you and making you his temple and being glorified in your body. That's what salvation is. And when we understand this concept, it gives us a different perspective on what salvation means. It's not just a ticket to get to heaven. It's the reality that God wants to live in me right now and he wants me to be bringing him glory right now in my body. Secondly, it it applies to security. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, let's see, God moved into Adam. Adam got dirty. God moved out. God moved into the temple. Temple got dirty. God moved out. God moved into Jesus, put sin on him, had to turn his head, had to forsake him. God moved into me. I sin, therefore... Well, let me, let me tell you something real encouraging. God is not moving in and out of houses anymore. God has moved into you, and he says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's because the first thing Jesus does when he comes in is he fixes our sin problem. That's why the price was so high. That's why it cost the blood of Jesus Christ to turn you into condemned property into the temple of God so that he can now say of each one of us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me show you a verse. Look, look at, keep your finger here and go to John chapter 14. little verse here, I just noticed this the other day. John chapter 14. And verse 20. 
Jesus says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Okay, Jesus says, I'm in you and you're in me. And then he adds, not only that, but I, in whom you are, am in the Father. So it's kind of like taking, taking us and putting us in a little, what do you want to be in? A little container. Put the lid on. That's Jesus. And then we take Jesus and we put him inside a big barrel and lock the lid on. We're in the Father. You see, he's talking about us being in him and him being in us, and then he introduces the idea of him being in the Father, which kind of tells me something, and and I would read this into it. Jesus is saying, the only way you could get you out of me and me out of you is to get me out of the Father, and that's not going to happen. That's our security in Christ. And then come back to our passage. Because this concept of Christ being in us also has an application in the area of spirituality. Sometimes people say, don't act so spiritual. But see, spirituality is not something you do. It's something you are. It's not being someone you're not. It's being who you are. See, a lot of people act spiritual when they walk through the doors of this building. You know why that is? Because they think that this is the house of God. They think this is the temple of God and I better start acting better. But see, this is not the temple of God. This is the temple of God. You are not in the temple on Sunday. You are the temple 24-7. And when you understand that concept, you realize that spirituality is not something I do in certain places. Spirituality is who I am because the Spirit of God lives in me, dwells in me, and I am his temple. Fourth application has to do with service. You know, I think this concept really holds the key to Christian service because the key to true Christian service is that Jesus Christ lives in you and he wants to live his life out through you. See, I can do one of two things. I can try to do the best I can to live the Christian life or I can surrender to his lordship and let him live through me. See, I need to acknowledge what it says in verse 19, and that is that I am not my own. I don't own me. God owns me. I belong to him. He bought me, and therefore I need to surrender myself to him and let him live out through me. See, there's only one person who ever lived the Christian life, and it wasn't you. But he lives inside of you. And so the only way I can live the Christian life is not by my perspiring, 
but by my allowing him to live out his life through me. So service is just letting Jesus be Jesus in you. See, there's certain people I can't love, but Jesus can. There's certain things I can't forgive, but Jesus can. There's certain things I can't seem to get myself to do, but Jesus can. You see, as I surrender myself to him, as I realize that I don't own me, he owns me, and I let him live his life out through me, then I'm able to do those things that only he can do. So what is God's address? If you're a believer, you can point right at yourself. God created you. God bought you. God owns you. God indwells you. You are his temple. And so the question is, how are you going to glorify God in your body this week? I'm going to have the praise team come back up. And we're going to sing in closing as we stand together that praise song, I will give you all my worship. We are the temple of God. We give him all our worship, not just here this morning, but every day and every hour. And as we sing together, it may be an opportunity for you, if you've been owning your own body and running your own life, to make a fresh commitment to the Lord and say, Lord, I surrender to you. This is your body. You bought it with the blood of Christ. And I'm going to give it back to its rightful owner and let you live your life out through me. Let's say that to the Lord individually today as we close our service. I know uh, Emily was baptized. I'm going to ask her to come forward. There's some others that are going to join this morning. You come as we sing as well. But let's make this our song to the Lord this morning as we worship him together. Let's stand as we sing in closing.